Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer, our Politics Wednesday edition. And today we have two colleagues from Iowa State University, Karen Kadrowski, Professor of Political Science at ISU, also Director of the Carrie Chapman Katz Center for Women and Politics. Hi, Karen. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Thank you great. for joining us. Jim McCormick with us as well. He's in our uh, AIMS studio, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at ISU. Hi, Jim. Hi, Ben. And we'd like to invite our listeners to join us as we um, survey about a half dozen areas of political news, as we like to do. It will uh, uh, stretch uh, to the Middle East and also into domestic politics. one 780 Email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Later in the hour, uh, we'll talk about that endorsement uh, for Nikki Haley from the powerful Political Coke Network um, and her growing appeal among Republicans. Uh, also, interestingly, as we count down the, the final days, if you want to look at it that way, less than 50 days before the uh, Iowa caucuses, of course, the focus on the GOP side of things for those Jan- January 15th caucuses, we'll sample some ads and have uh, Jim and uh, Karen kind of talk about the messaging that we're hearing in those ads. Uh, also, we'll talk about President Biden's absence from the annual U.N. Climate Summit this week, sending the Vice President Harris instead, the battle over Hunter Biden's testimony. Also, uh, perhaps we'll talk about the fact that members of Congress heading for the exits, um, retiring in greater numbers than they have in past election cycles, and also toward the end of the hour, we Definitely want to remember former First Lady Rosalind Carter. 1-866-780-9100, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Let's start abroad in the Middle East. Uh, Jim, with your foreign policy expertise, we'll um, be putting that mainly on your shoulders, but also turning to Karen for some domestic implications. Uh, just to catch us up to speed, more hostages are set to be released from the Gaza Strip today. This is the sixth day of a pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas, um, which may be extended to release more hostages and more Palestinian prisoners. Uh, We've heard that the CIA director of the U.S. uh, traveling to Qatar to uh, push for a longer pause. Also, the return of eight or nine Americans believed to be held in Gaza. Palestinian officials say more than 13,000 people have been killed in Gaza. And they also say that number is incomplete as thousands remain, uh, remain missing. Jim, let's start with you. How do you view this pause in fighting, possible extension, the release of hostages for Palestinian prisoners? Well, I think the first thing to, to keep in mind is, here is that, you know, President Biden is really kind of walking a very fine line. He's trying at the same time to to support Israel, uh, you know, giving military assistance. But he's also concerned about the kind of destruction that we have really witnessed within Gaza. And he's also concerned about, you know, sort of third part of this is, uh, is the hostages. And of course, there's only been one American released so far. So uh, he is really pushing for a greater pause here. Uh, and I just noticed before I sat down here that Apparently, an Israeli official is saying that there might be a time for a two- or three-day 
additional pause. Whether mm-hmm. that is manifest or not, we'll we'll have to wait and see. I think uh, Director Burns, you know, is obviously calling for a much longer pause because if you if you really think about it, the, the there are still 161 uh, hostages that are being held by Hamas here. Uh, and, you know, one of the real objectives of the Israelis, as well as the Americans, is to get those uh, hostages uh, released here. And the other danger, it seems to me, from the American perspective is that if the Israelis move into the southern part of Gaza, uh, you know, I've, I've been reading some of the kind of devastation that has already been taking place and the kind of crowding of, uh, of Palestinians in that southern southern part of Gaza, you know, there's going to be more civilian casualties, and that's going to be I think, uh, ramp up kind of the international community response. So uh, the president is really trying to trying to do both of these things, your President Biden, uh, in terms of uh, making certain uh, that there's movement in terms of getting some of these hostages released, but also being very careful and, and sort of warning, I, I guess that's probably a strong term that the administration wouldn't like to say, but warning the Israelis not to to move too quickly and, and um, you know, in terms of the kind of destruction and casualties that might occur uh, in, in, um, the, in southern Gaza here. So it's, it's a difficult situation, it seems to me. Uh, uh, it'll be interesting to see what the response is of the um, uh, Israeli prime minister, Netanyahu, who has said, you know, that he said after the pause, you know, they're going to go forward and you know, there was an uh, uh, IDF official that I saw quoted this morning saying that they're all prepared to uh, to, to go forward here. So it, it's we're kind of on eggshells at the moment here in terms of getting more hostages, but also uh, in terms of what what is going to uh, eventuate in terms of in terms of southern Gaza. Mm-hmm. Karen, if I can ask you to comment on the domestic front, the repercussions here in our domestic politics. Uh, for decades, you know, our lawmakers of both parties have approved huge amounts of military funding for Israel, few strings attached to that. Um, now uh, there seems to be, as those civilian death uh, tolls soar in Gaza, a growing number of Democrats, uh, really worried about how American dollars are being used. Um, your thoughts on this shift? Yeah, I think that uh, Biden is really um, in a tough spot in terms of holding together the Democratic coalition. The Republican Party is really united um, pretty strongly against Israel, uh, but the Democrats uh, have a, a significant faction, um, the progressive faction that is more sympathetic to Palestine, uh, that points out what they see as human rights abuses um, on the part of Israel, um, and that what's been going on with the civilian casualties in the Gaza war is just, you know, the latest set of examples of what they see as uh, human rights violations on the part of the state of Israel. So Biden has to try to mollify um, the um, those that are uh, sympathetic to Palestine as well as holding together, you know, the traditional Jewish support for the Democratic Party, which is considerable. So I I think, you know, in terms of what we have seen domestically um, on some college campuses and other examples of violence, such as the shooting in Vermont, is that the administration um, and congressional leaders both need to roundly 
condemn any anti-Semitic and anti-Islamic rhetoric or actions. Um, You know, this is the Israeli and Hamas war. It does not need to be playing out within our own shores. And uh, these individuals need to be able, you know, Jews and Arabs alike need to be able to live their lives peacefully. Mm -hmm. Jim, back to you. How, How do you see the president bridging this divide if Bridging is the right word there among uh, Democrats. Is is that a challenge that's um, uh, something that you see that he, he can master there? I think he can. I think in what's, what Secretary of State Blinken, you know, also went, uh, went to Qatar here uh, and apparently is trying to explore uh, the possibility of, you know, moving back to a two-state solution. That has always been the... Um, the administration's position. In fact, it's been the American position going back to uh, probably Clinton, um, but more formally during the George W. Bush administration was publicly announced. Uh, and so there, there really is an effort to try to do that. And again, I just noticed that um, the uh, Palestinian Authority leader, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, came out with a statement that he'd like to see an international conference here. Uh, and I think one of the strategies that the uh, administration might well be pursuing is trying to bring the Arab states, which in many ways uh, are don't have a great deal of support for Hamas, uh, you know, because it, it came out of the uh, Muslim Brotherhood and, and so on, uh, and it is closely tied to Iran. So if the Americans can kind of bridge the, uh, the support of some Arab states who are hesitant about, uh, you know, about I- Iran, maybe they can piece together uh, an international conference, um, you know, in terms of moving back towards a two-state solution. I'm not suggesting that it's, that it's particularly easy, but I think, you know, the symbolism of trying to get a solution here, uh, maybe from if there are some Palestinian leaders within Hamas who basically accept uh, the existence of the state of Israel, one of the things that that trouble that's a problem with Hamas is that they will not accept the state of Israel. And of course, the Israeli government at the present time uh, has uh, not supported a two-state solution. So there has to be give and take on both of these sides. And I, I see it as a possibility that, you know, over time, I don't, I, this is not going to be a deus ex machina here, uh, but it, it could be over time that you have an international conference of bringing these Arab states together, bringing together some of these uh, Palestinian leaders uh, in in Gaza or beyond, and, and in the West Bank, uh, to to an international conference. That that's one of the. I'm surely that's one of the hopeful uh, items that the, the administration is looking ter- towards in terms of long term. And of course, it serves a very other important uh, interest, and that is it tends to isolate the uh, Iranians who have been deeply involved. Uh, in this conflict here, at least in terms of their support and uh, and sort of some of the attacks upon, you know, American uh, outposts in uh, Syria and Iraq. Jim McCormick of Iowa State University, Karen Kedrowski also of ISU, our guests, our political scientists, uh, this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River. Join us, 1-866-780-9100, River to River at iowapublicradio.org, our email. Uh, let's stay abroad, so to speak. The climate is certainly something that expe- that affects our whole globe, and and uh, we now know that the um, 
president will not attend the annual U.N. climate summit. Uh, It's a gathering of world leaders annually focused on climate change. This week in Dubai, it's known as COP28. Uh, And uh, the the president uh, sending Vice President Harris there instead, and we'll talk about that when we come back, why it may be that President Biden will not be attending, instead sending the vice president after uh, making the climate one of his uh, signature goals here. Join us after the break, 1-866-780-9100. Back with Jim McCormick and Karen Kodrowski in just a moment. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Back with more of this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer with political scientists Karen Kadrowski and Jim McCormick of Iowa State University. Join us with your questions, 1-866-780-9100, or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. I want to talk about the uh, president not attending the U.N. Climate Summit, the annual summit. Uh, but let, let's uh, go to our first caller. Daphne is joining us from Iowa City. I think you wanted to comment on um, our earlier discussion about uh, the latest developments in the Middle East. Daphne, welcome to the program. Thank you. Go ahead, please. What's your question? Um, yeah, Professor McCormack, um, I don't know whether I misunderstood or misheard, but it seemed that he was implying that Hamas should be a member, um, a party to a conference um, about Israel and Palestine. Um, Did I hear correctly? Jim. No, that really wasn't what I intended. Hopefully, if you you were able to create this conference, uh, would there be Palestinians from Gaza who would not be, you know, necessarily Hamas, but would be interested in accepting the uh, the idea of the existence of the state of Israel, ex- basically accept the the key resolutions, which are UN Resolution 242 and 338. So I I wasn't uh, wasn't uh, in any way, but but there may well be some, and we don't have a good handle, it seems to me, or at least I haven't seen it, uh, of how much of the Palestinians that live in Gaza are really supportive of Hamas. Uh, and so I suspect there are some uh, that, uh, and maybe it's a large portion or maybe not, uh, that would be uh, interested in, in uh, some accommodation here. Mm-hmm. So that was, a, that was the basis of my point. Daphne, thank you for your question from Iowa City. Let's move on to a question about the Middle East from Gary in Davenport, listening there. Uh, he writes, on September 17, 1948, Jewish terrorists... Uh, assassinated U.N. meteor Folke Bernadotte, uh, if I have that pronunciation correct, uh, because he proposed a confederal Jewish-Arab state. They did this so they could fight for a Jewish state, ideally spanning both sides of the Jordan River. Please comment on how this resonates today. Jim, would you like to reach way back in in history uh, to comment on oh, right. Gary's uh, remark there? 
Yeah, I mean the original idea, of course, uh, with when the when the British gave up their mandate uh, was, and there was a UN partition plan uh, in uh, November, I believe, of 1947, which had really had, had two kind of ideas here. One would be the creation of a federated uh, state uh, of with a with the Jewish and an Arab component, and others would be uh, would be separate here, uh, and. You know, neither neither side was really very willing uh, to engage in that. Perhaps uh, uh, the Jewish agency, which was the official representative uh, uh, of uh, the uh, Jewish community at that time, was a little bit more receptive uh, to that to that idea. But it was really re- rather soundly rejected by uh, by, uh, by by the Arab uh, component here or Arab uh, Arab uh, uh, members here. Uh, and so I think the the result is that you know the uh, you know the resulting uh, attack that was mentioned, uh, given that there was not that, that there was really this kind of movement towards an Israeli state, uh, this uh, might might explain this uh, this incident that you that you mentioned here. Yeah, and, and I have to look more fully at yeah, yeah. more fully at yeah, the but, incident. But, but I guess more 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 broadly speaking, Jim, the, the question too about how. The founding of Israel resonates with the the issues today. It's resonated for decades. It is very much a part of it, isn't it? It really is. I mean, you know, the uh, with the declaration of the state of Israel on what May fourteenth, nineteen forty eight. Uh, you know, this eventually what happened was the outbreak of this sort of the first uh, uh, Israeli Palestinian war that occurred uh, from forty eight until forty nine here. So that that has continued to be. Uh, you know, obviously a flashpoint uh, in terms of the uh, in terms of the conflict in the Middle East. Yeah. Mm-hmm. President Biden not attending the U.N. climate com- conference uh, this week in Dubai, known as COP28 this year. He uh, has put this uh, at the forefront of his uh, signature achievements, uh, signing the country's first major climate law. He's overseen record, fe- record federal investment in clean energy in each of the past two years. He's attended this conference um, uh, this year, likely to be the hottest in recorded history. Biden staying home. Karen, what do you see in, in the president's decision not to attend this year uh, to send Vice President Harris instead? Well, I think that, you know, initially John Kerry was the person who was going to lead the American delegation and uh, the the absence of a higher level administration individual um, was, was clearly a point of criticism. So I think Vice President Harris's um, decision to attend uh, COP28 is, is sort of a recognition or a response to that criticism. Um, but it does signal that the United States, uh, or that Biden did not think that attending this particular conference was um, as important as other things that he wanted to do. So, you know, his schedule is you know, includes a trip to Colorado uh, for a fundraiser, but also to visit a wind farm, uh, which I think, you know, symbolically talks about his uh, commitment to climate. But, you know, what's what's going to be discussed at this climate conference is already what we know, um, that global warming is not abating um, and that climate change will be a terrible disaster. And uh, we know who the primary emitters of greenhouse gases are, which include the United States and China. 
Mm-hmm. And we know the U.S. It has produced record amounts of crude oil this year. Um, but so sort of walking a line again, the president having to walk a line here, isn't he, Karen? Um, because we hear Republicans criticizing him um, as pursuing a radical green agenda. Yes, absolutely. But of course, it's not a radical green agenda. And, uh, you know, again, there are people on the left who don't think that uh, Biden has gone far enough. And just to make a point, um, consumption of petroleum products is a different question than production Mm. of petroleum products. You could continue to consume more and more and just import them rather than producing our, our own, you know, gasoline and diesel and so forth from domestic production. Um, And from a, the perspective of national security, um, you know, importing too much of these fuels, at least while we are still very, very dependent upon them, um, is a is a huge question. So the the domestic, you know, increasing domestic production could be seen as a way of sort of safeguarding a national security interest. So what's really at issue is how much are we consuming mm. and consumption has not decreased significantly. Mm-hmm. Jim McCormick, your thoughts on uh, Biden's decision not to attend and, and the uh, political pressures he may be facing here that may have played into this decision? Well, it is somewhat ironic. I mean, you know, because uh, President Biden, one of his first uh, executive orders said that climate change would be at the center of uh, America's domestic and foreign policy. So I think there is a bit of an irony here. He, as he attended the two previous ones, the one in, one in Scotland, one in uh, in uh, Egypt here. Uh, so I, I think that, you know, probably not necessarily necessary to go to every one of them. Also, it turns out that some other heads of states uh, are not uh, are not attending this. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is that the U.S. and China has already agreed uh, in early November here. Uh, to uh, to ramp up at least uh, renewable energy capacity uh, by by 2030 here. Whether that will become a reality or not, uh, you know, is uh, is a problem. But that was that's one of the uh, items on the agenda at uh, at COP 28. So uh, I mean, in some in some senses, uh, uh, John Kerry negotiating that with with China uh, has already uh, moved uh, the. The needle a, a bit here, um, and also I think there is a question about whether there is going to be an agreement, could be an agreement to actually uh, displace fossil fuels, and that was that was also on the agenda for for COP 28, uh, and um, there's disagreement, and it's there was likely or is likely not to have a a, a particular uh, outcome here. Mm-hmm. I think the. I think the point made earlier um, in actually in one of your newscasts here is that perhaps the president would, you know, visit COP28 uh, if some agreement were struck uh, uh, via Zoom or something, um, you know, is, is really, a, really a possibility here. Uh, but I, 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 I guess I would put less um, emphasis on the, on the failure of the president to attend this than than anything that really takes away from the the agenda that that he really has in terms of climate. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, let's talk about the president's son back in the news. A House Republican subpoenaed the president's son, Hunter Biden. That was earlier this month. Summoned him to appear for a closed door, uh, a transcribed interview, closed door, as part of an escalation of the impeachment inquiry into the president. This week, though, the the president's uh, the, the the lawyer of Hunter Biden said in a letter to that panel. He is open to testifying publicly before the Republican-led Oversight Committee uh, in mid-December. Um, and and we have, um, to, to quote uh, the committee chair, James Comer, Republican from Kentucky, we have seen you use these closed-door sessions to manipulate, even distort the facts. Now, this is rather the lawyer, sorry, Biden, Hunter Biden's lawyer, saying that these closed-door sessions are used to manipulate, distort facts. Comer saying uh, that uh, Hunter Biden is trying to play by his own rules. What it boils down to, Karen, perhaps you can shed some light on this for us. Help us understand what's going on here. Why the big uh, controversy between a closed-door interview before this panel versus public testimony before this panel? Well, and I think part of it is um, that Hunter Biden wants to be able to speak to the American people um, and to to point out, you know, some of the, you know, um, I guess, extreme or more controversial positions of, you know, what the Biden administration sees as sort of an impeachment farce. Right. And so if there are television cameras in the room, um, it will certainly highlight um, any, you know, particularly um, unusual questions that might be asked. But then also Hunter Biden can kind of um, create his own persona. Right now, his public persona has been really shaped by this by the Republicans narrative that this guy is smarmy, uh, that he has, you know, profited off of his last name. um, And, you know, there's all this sort of guilt by association to tarnish uh, President Biden's reputation. And so if uh, Hunter Biden is on camera, he can present himself in a way that um, engenders credibility and maybe even sympathy on the part of American public. And he has a very public way of being able to uh, tell his story, right, Um, you know, to the American people and to, you know, establish his own credibility and to shape that narrative in a way that is less negative. So, yeah, it's it's definitely it's a risk. But if he is well prepared, it would be um, an enormous opportunity. And I think that Representative Comer's um, response is essentially, you know, uh, recognizes that as well by simply saying that there, he's invited to a closed door session and he doesn't get to stipulate the um, the conditions under which he testifies. Uh, Jim, Democrats say this is a vast, unproven family conspiracy. Uh, Jim, we, we don't have any evidence uh, uh, yet uh, that the Republicans are looking for uh, in, in this issue. They're probing whether the president unlawfully aided his son, profited off his business dealings. No evidence for that so far, is there? Uh, no, there there is not. And and as uh, Karen was suggested, it some of this is by sort of by just by association. Uh, there there's an inferential leap. Uh, that is being made here. Uh, and so, you know, they, we really have to wait to see if there's anything anything substantively here. I think the other thing is that why, the, why they, um, you know, Biden would go 
will go public with his testimony, uh, Hunter Biden, uh, is that, you know, they, they don't want the committee to leak particular information uh, if it's in a closed door session uh, that would be advantageous to their uh, to the committee's uh, uh, actions uh, and would be would hurt uh, hurt Hunter Biden here. So I think, you know, the the uh, open open uh, agreements here, open statements uh, uh, would be uh, would be much, uh, much easier for both both sides to. Uh, to endure. Mm-hmm. Let's switch gears to talk about um, the caucuses. Time running out for former President Trump's Republican rivals less than 50 days before the Iowa caucuses on January 15th. Um, we should expect all kinds of negative mailers in our mailboxes, attack ads, uh, door knockers across the state as we have the final uh, weeks before the caucuses. Um, and uh, before the break, I wanted to comment, have you comment, Karen, especially you, as director of the Carrie Chapman Katz Center for Women in Politics at ISU, about this powerful political network, the, the Koch Network, endorsing this week Nikki Haley for president. Uh, this is a group led by the billionaire Charles Koch, backed by, backing the former U.N. ambassador, uh, an effort here apparently to stop Donald Trump from becoming the 2024 Republican nominee. Karen. Yes. Well, I, I mean, it's another feather in Haley's cap. And I think it it demonstrates that people are seeing what a skilled campaigner she is and how bright she is. And that, you know, out of the, the field of challengers to Trump, that she's the one who probably has the greatest staying power. Um, the, the Coke network is important because of the money that they can put into the campaign, um, purchasing ads, you know, employing people to go door knocking on her behalf or, you know, paying for mailers and things like that, um, as, as well as sort of the boost from, you know, the Coke group as being, you know, a libertarian, right? So it, it, it speaks to that wing of, you know, the economic conservatives, the social, uh, you know, libertarians. Um, it speaks to that wing of the Republican Party. Um, and I think coupled with, you know, the what we know about the difficulties that the RNC has in fundraising right mm-hmm. now, definitely says that a lot of sort of the leadership, the elites in the Republican Party have grave reservations about President Trump, even as he is leading among the grassroots. Yeah, we want to sample some ads in just a moment, but in, in we have just a few seconds. But Karen, potentially a, a pivot point in this primary race? Um, I, I, given the gap between Trump and everybody not named Trump, I, I don't think it would be a pivot. I think, if anything, it's going to be a slow erosion and a, a move of the not Trumpers toward Haley as the most viable um, as the most viable alternative. I mean, Trump's Trump's support has continued at the same level or even okay. increased a little bit, where we have really seen it decreases with Santos. Back in just a moment with more from Karen Kodrowski and Jim McCormick, Politics Day on River to River. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
Back with more of this Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer with Jim McCormick and Karen Kodrowski of Iowa State University there in the Political Science Department uh, uh, surveying a a few of our leading political stories uh, this week, uh, currently talking about, well, less than 50 days before the caucuses here on January 15th, uh, eyes focused on the GOP side of the equation, of course. Uh, It's interesting Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis attacking each other in Iowa ads. Meanwhile, Trump attacking Biden, an interesting dynamic uh, there. Let's sample a, a couple of bits of audio campaign ads from Super PACs. And Karen and Jim have your impressions of these. Um, uh, we should expect uh, an influx of advertising the next month. Uh, from Nikki Haley's presidential campaign, Ron DeSantis. Uh, This is a recent television ad by Haley's federal super PAC, Stand for America, mocking Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and arguing uh, her foreknowledge, apparently, of the Israel-Hamas conflict. Poor Ron DeSantis. He's losing. He's lying. So now he's throwing mud at Nikki Haley. The truth? Nikki Haley has been clear that other Arab countries in the Middle East should be the ones taking in Palestinians. I've always said we shouldn't take any Gazan refugees in the U.S. Nikki Haley warned the United Nations about Hamas's threat to Israel. Hamas did this. You know Iran's behind it. Finish them. They should have hell to pay for what they've just done. SFA funding is responsible for the content of this advertising. Jim, let me hand you the dissection of that ad <laughs> by uh, Nikki Haley, Super PAC. Uh, that one, since it deals with foreign policy, what do you hear there? Well, I think the first thing is that that it's an attack upon, you know, DeSantis here. Uh, you know, and that it's really not an attack of, upon Trump or upon Biden here. I think that's the first thing. The second thing I think, and I think that uh, Haley is trying to get her bona fides in, with regard to foreign policy. And that she would be, as she, as uh, one of the other ads that I've seen, you know, standing up to China and so on. This is the same one in terms of standing up to Iran here. Uh, you know that this ad sort of uh, depicts that that foreign policy uh, position that that she will be strong. I mean, there's certainly out there, as you know, some of the public opinion polls showing that you know there's a, a, an angst among the American public over national security, and I think that she's trying to establish. Uh, that she would be really uh, a, a good spokesperson, a good leader uh, for the United States in the global arena. Yeah. And in her debate performances, Karen Nikki Haley is anything but timid on any topic and especially foreign policy. But former, you know, U.N. ambassador, former governor of South Carolina for her executive experience there, foreign policy credentials, executive experience. Uh, this is what she's pushing there, isn't she? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, when you look at her resume, um, she's she is probably the one person besides President Trump and President Biden in the race who can claim uh, to have both executive and foreign policy experience. Mm-hmm. Usually when governors are running for president, one of their great weak points is that they don't have much foreign policy experience. Uh, but she, you know, went to the was ambassador to the U.N., so she checks that box as well as having the executive experience. Um, and she's also just very well informed on a whole variety of issues and is able to think quickly on her feet. So her uh, responses to questions are, are very 
uh, pointed. There's not a lot of ums and ahs. She knows exactly what she wants to say, and she's able to say it very clearly um, under under enormous pressure, right? These debates are, are high-stakes events, and uh, she never seems to be rattled. Uh, she seems to be able to pull off one-liners. She's, you know, uh, doing, I think, very well in all of these debates. Yeah. Comment about what we what our understanding is of Republicans, conservative voters who really would like to have a viable alternative, Karen, to to Trump and and the reasons for that. Um, Comment on, well, how big is this cross section of the Republican Party as you see it? Um, And what's what's primarily driving that search for a viable alternative conservative presidential candidate? Yeah. Um, well, I'd say that it's, um, if I had to guess on a number, it's probably around 30% of the Republican Party that, you know, really wants to see Trump replaced. It's just that Trump's, um, it, it, Trump's followers, his base, are so wildly devoted to him that um, those that are sort of not Trumpers or never Trumpers really have to, um, I think, tread lightly in order to be able to influence the party. Um, I think what's driving it, though, is sort of a combination of factors. I think there is one group that has a, a general distaste of um, for Trump's theatrics, for his inexperience. Uh, we have seen any number of his former members of his administration who have come out and told stories about the the disorganized nature of the administration, about Trump's inability to grasp, um, you know, difficult uh, concepts or his lack of interest in learning, um, and that they see him as dangerous. Um, I think also that there are some that just really, you know, think that, you know, we know what a Trump presidency is going to look like. He lost decisively to Biden. We can't run him again because he will lose to Biden. Uh, so there's also the kind of practical political calculation going on. Yeah, you use the word dangerous there, Karen. Uh, Jim, I'm not sure. Perhaps you can pick up on that. Jim, I'm, I'm interpreting dangerous as um, dangerous, to, as we pointed out, uh, you know, in, in ways of authoritarian tendencies here. Dangerous to our democracy. Is that what you meant, Karen? Dangerous to our democracy, but also in terms of just potentially leading us into some sort of foreign policy disaster as well. Mm-hmm. Jim, comment, please. Well, I think uh, yeah, dangerous does uh, turn on you know, the challenge to uh, uh, democratic principles here. Uh, on the foreign policy realm, you know, uh, Trump has moved increasingly towards much more of an isolationist kind of stance. I mean, that's a little bit strong to say isolationist, but much more selective kind of involvement of the United States. Uh, you know, and, he, and he's been trying to appeal to that sector of the, uh, of the electorate uh, as well. I think the other thing about uh, Haley that I would just add uh, you know, that where where she can draw uh, away is in terms of independence, because she does come across as kind of a very, much more of a traditional uh, Republican uh, in, in terms of some of her foreign policy stances, as well as uh, on some of the domestic issues here. So I think that there are sort of independent leaners, uh, either right or left here, uh, you know, might be attracted to her. So I think that that's a way to actually to uh, increase 
uh, her, um, her her base support, if you will. I, I think Karen's right that maybe it's 25 to 30 percent among Republicans. But but I think that that uh, Haley would have uh, attract uh, attraction uh, to some of these independents here, sort of unlike some of the other Republican candidates that are that are in the uh, in the race uh, here. And so that is probably why, you know, public opinion polls have shown if a, you know, a matchup against Biden, that she actually does better than than the other uh, the other Republican contenders here. Mm-hmm. Jim McCormick. Yeah. Uh, and just one more thing on Haley. I, I think she is probably the only Republican in the race who really has um, the ability to kind of blunt the Democrats' natural advantage on the issue of abortion. Um, you know, whereas, you know, her her colleagues are talking about, you know, six week um, abortion bans and national abortion ban and all those kinds of things. She's she makes a practical political argument saying we're not going to get that <laughs> because we don't have the votes. So let's talk about where we have points of consensus. Um, and, you know, it's uh, you know, I think that is the one argument that might otherwise, you know, kind of uh blunt the Democrats, um, you know, position on abortion and the advantage that they have going into the race on that issue. Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, uh, governor of Florida, they're uh, running neck and neck, according to polls here in Iowa, New Hampshire, I believe uh, Haley is ahead. Uh, And then after that, third in line after Iowa and New Hampshire comes uh, Haley's home state, North Carolina. but let's let's get the other side. Ron DeSantis uh, listened to an ad from his super PAC. Uh, f- um, Fight Right <laughs> is the name of the super PAC. It brought back uh, um, fighting. Well, in this ad released last week, a 30 second ad using past Nikki Haley quotes about Hillary Clinton in an effort mm-hmm. to compare those two politicians. Let's listen. We know her as Crooked Hillary, but to Nikki Haley, she's her role model, the reason she ran for office. I often say that the reason I got into politics was because of Hillary Clinton. She said, and that's the reason you absolutely have to. And I walked out of there and I said, I'm running for office. Hillary Clinton is actually the reason. You write about her being a big inspiration for you in terms of a leader. She is actually the reason that I made the jump. (laughs) Fight writing is responsible for the content of this advertising. Okay, Karen, how potentially devastating are those quotes uh, when uh, uh, people consider as a conservative voter voting for Nikki Haley? Uh, Well, if they don't know the backstory and the context, um, they could be potentially very devastating. And the, the the sexism and the misogyny I and mean, these has are just on multiple levels, right? You know, you have this witch's cackle, at, <laughs> uh, you know, um, of Hillary Clinton's, you know, AI-generated voice at the end. You see um, that they taught, use the term crooked Hillary, which, you know, is definitely, uh, you know, harkens to what Trump referred to her as. And it capitalizes on the fact that Hillary Clinton is a very divisive individual in American politics. She has very high positive and very high negative. Um, but the, the real context about this, because Haley has told this story multiple times, and the Washington Post did a great job of sort of analyzing this ad, is that she attended an event in Greenville when she was considering running for the state legislature um, that 
you know, was designed to encourage women to run for office. And whenever she talks about this, she always says, I don't agree with Hillary Clinton's politics. I did not vote for Hillary Clinton, and I had no problems not voting for her. But she was there encouraging me to run when I was being told not to run, and I did, right? Um, and, you know, that is, you know, the the complete and, and full story behind this. It's not that, you know, Haley... Um, agrees with Clinton's ideology at all. She's very much an economic libertarian. And when she was governor, she wanted to do things like eliminate the corporate income tax. You know, that's not a Clintonite policy at all. Um, but, you know, but, you know, the ads could be very, very effective with mm-hmm. these partial truths and quotes taken out of context. Karen and Jim, in the final five minutes, there's so much we didn't get to that I would have liked to get to, but our hour has escaped us once again on Politics Wednesday. I want to make sure in the final five minutes we mark the the, the passing of uh, Rosalind Carter, her life uh, celebrated uh, at a memorial in Atlanta yesterday. Uh, the former First Lady's husband, former President Jimmy Carter, uh, making a rare public opinions uh, appearance uh, there, as well as uh, the Bidens, the Clintons, uh, former First Ladies Michelle Obama, also Melania Trump. Um, today, uh, Carter's funeral taking place in Plains, Georgia, at a Baptist church where she and her husband her husband of 77 years uh, worshipped at this uh, Baptist church and also where uh, the, the former president taught Sunday school. Karen, start us off here. Um, reflections on the life of this remarkable woman and first lady. She was really a transformative first lady. Uh, first ladies did not have office space and a uh, an official staff before she became first lady. Uh, She was also one of the first first ladies um, to become very active on policy issues. And she called attention and called for, you know, significant support for people with mental illnesses, uh, both, you know, sort of socially, you know, accepting of people with mental illness and to remove the stigma, but also to put resources into it and have it treated as any other sort of illness. Uh, which in you know the 1970s was rather pathbreaking. She was also um, you know a strong um, advocate for the Equal Rights Amendment, um, and she was actually um, actively lobbying as first ladies as the first lady in various state legislatures, um, especially Indiana, to secure ratifications to the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, so, and then of course that their the Carter's time after they were in the White House mm-hmm. was just really a, a magnificent example of community service. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jim, what stands out to you to you most about the the long legacy um that the former first lady leaves us? Yeah, I think there's two words that describe uh for me uh what Rosalind Carter was about. Sort of the dignity that she brought to the office as well as Karen pointed out, some, the establishment of the office of the First Lady. And I was surprised to learn that that uh, she attended cabinet meetings regularly and took notes and so on, uh, which I think is, uh, you know, uh, again, reflective of her kind of commitment to, to not only to her husband, but to also to the country. The second uh, uh, word that sort of summarizes it for me is service, but not just public service. Uh, it's really the private service after they left, uh, after they left the White House, 
uh, in setting up the Carter's uh, Center here at Emory University, their work around the world, uh, you know, in terms of diseases uh, and so on, you know, the Habitat for Humanity, uh, you know, was one of the sort of the singular uh, efforts that they uh, that they undertook. And I think the final, maybe I, maybe I would add a third word, the, the commonality that she and her husband brought by returning to Plains mm. after their presidency to their to their roots here. Um, you know, we don't often see that with some of our presidents uh, and and the kind of the simplicity of life that they that they uh, embraced here upon uh, the end of their political political career here, I think is also very, very nice message to the American public and to American society in general. And so yeah. that also is a, is a source of, uh, I think, of great applause from, from my perspective. How refreshing in these hyper-partisan times to celebrate uh, that life. Um, both parties celebrating the life of uh, Rosalind Carter, former First Lady. Jim McCormick and Karen Kodrowski, thank you so much for joining us this hour. We appreciate it. Always a thank pleasure, you, ben. ben. It's been about 10 years since e-cigarettes, vaping, really took off, especially with young people. They were the target and have been for much of its marketing. Tomorrow on the program, a firsthand account of vaping addiction. Also the head of the FDA's Center for Tobacco Products. I'll have him on and a lung doctor with uh, your, uh, answering your health questions surrounding the vaping craze. Tomorrow on the program. Hope you'll join us.